Welcome to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're going to be glad that you did because today I'm in conversation with Dr. Eduardo Magallanes III. And if you teach comparative government and politics, or if you take the AP Comparative Government and Politics class, I think you should know that name because Eduardo serves as the chief reader for the AP Comparative Government and Politics exam. He also is a member of the Test Development Committee, so he does a whole lot for and with this class. And he and I explore how he approaches leading the reading. But before we get into all of that good stuff, we discuss the challenges that he provides for his students in his comparative government and politics courses at Simpson College in sunny Iowa. Gonna tell you, Iowa might be the most underappreciated state in America. It's true. It's possible. It's at least possible. It's in the running. Lots of underappreciated states in the U.S., Iowa, but one of them. Now, you should know that this is the first in a three-part series that I'm sharing with professors of comparative government and politics. They're also AP readers. And if I might add, they're all lovely people. Now, if you think this is a good idea, if you support this idea, please consider supporting this podcast. How do I support the podcast, you ask? Thank you for asking, my friend. Just head over to buymeacoffee.com slash kogopod. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash kogopod. The link is in the show notes to this episode. This, my friends, is a listener-supported podcast. And so if you're listening, you are cordially invited to support the program. No pressure, but every little bit does help to keep this thing going strong. Can't do it without you. And with that in mind, I want to give a hearty shout out to Karen Waples. Karen Waples is author of Comparative Government, Stories of the World. It's the hot new book for the AP Comparative Government and Politics course. A lot of teachers are beginning to adopt this book for their AP courses. I am in the process of adopting this book for my AP course. Pretty excited about it. And not only did Karen Waples publish a book that's designed specifically for the AP Comparative Government and Politics class, she also joined me on this here podcast. Oh, I will link to that conversation in the show notes of this episode as well. Now that there is a good idea. So Karen, thanks a million for publishing the book. Thanks a bazillion for being on the podcast with me. You were a wonderful and gracious guest. And who knows, maybe I can get you back on the podcast when the next edition comes out. I wonder how often Karen Waples is going to have to publish new editions of that textbook. Things change so rapidly in these countries. It's looking for amendments the second it gets off the presses. It's just the nature of the beast got to stay on top of things. Well, my guest today, Eduardo Magallanes III, stays on top of things. In fact, when you listen to this conversation, you will be shocked by how many countries he keeps his thumb on. It is quite remarkable what this guy does. And if I may, he's just a wonderful person to speak with. So my friends, please join me in conversation with Dr. Eduardo Magallanes III. 
Professor Eduardo Magallanes III. Welcome to the Kogo Pod. It is a bona fide pleasure to have you here with me. I'm really grateful to be in conversation with you. There's so much I want to learn from you today. There's so many places we could start, but perhaps I could get you to start at the beginning. Let's do it this way. Can you maybe tell the story of how and when you, sir, became a political animal? It's actually interesting. It's one of those things where from very, very early on in my life, probably middle school, I started following politics, very intrigued by the process of politics and, and winning campaigns and, and things of that nature. I've always been interested in the process kind of stuff. And then we moved to Brazil when I was 14 years old. And so my only contact back in those dark days where we didn't have internet or any of that kind of stuff, my only contact back with the U.S. was through Time Magazine. So I voraciously read Time Magazine every week when it arrived in Brazil. And I was consumed by the, the picture that Time Magazine was painting that everything in the U.S. was falling apart. You know, disaster was around the corner. Everything was awful. People were doing horrible things. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the country's not even going to be around by the time I get back in a couple of years. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> so I was really that that sort of magnified my interest in, OK, how are people making these kind of terrible decisions and and why are institutions producing these bad results and why are elections producing not the best candidates or elected people possible? And so it just sort of reinforced those kind of interests. Uh, and then when I went to college, government was the major that I pursued. Political science was what I was interested in. So I always assumed to this point in my life, to college, I always assumed that the only thing you could do with a degree in political science was to go into politics. And as I was approaching my senior year, and obviously having followed politics enough to know that, well, they don't just offer you, you know, mayor of Pleasantville, Iowa, when you graduate from college, <laughs> you got to have like a real job for a while before you run for office. And so I'm like, well, what, what am I going to do for a real job? And the sort of secondary thing that I'd always been interested in is teaching. When I was in middle school, I thought it might be cool to be a middle school teacher. When I was in high school, I thought it would be cool to be a high school teacher. And then when I got to college, I thought it would be cool to be a college teacher. And so I said, okay, well, then that's what I'll do. I'll go and pursue my PhD in political science and then teach political science at a school that was like my alma mater, small liberal arts college, you know, 800 some students, you know, on a hill with nice brick buildings, that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that was what, that's what I pursued as a career. And so once, once I got into academia and realized how passionately I do enjoy teaching, then the idea of running for public office sort of faded away. And I've now spent 33 years teaching political science here at Simpson College. 33 years, all of them at Simpson, huh? That's correct. Yes. I, I told people when I was looking for a job when I was finishing up at Iowa, my graduate school, that I wanted to go someplace and stay there until they named a building after me. 
I think you're well on your way. I have sort of a sidebar question sure. because uh, my brother studied at the University of Iowa as well. What oh. is your preferred order at the Hamburg Inn? <laughs> you know what? I must have been a poor graduate student than your brother was because I never <laughs> went to the Hamburg Inn. <laughs> Is it that pricey? I don't even know. I just remember they had yeah. a pie shake where they would take a piece of pie and shove it in a blender uh, with ice cream. And it um, yeah. it's to die for. It's also a bit of a problem. Okay. <laughs> so you did your PhD at the University of Iowa lovely campus, totally underrated school. I think the University of Iowa is awesome. What was your dissertation topic and how did you kind of come to that topic? Yeah, so obviously having lived in Brazil for two and a half years, I was focused on Latin American politics as what I wanted to specialize in. And as I was reflecting on what was most significant about Latin American politics, I came to the idea of, well, what's significant in Latin America is the transition of regimes, right? That Latin American history is full of countries going back and forth between dictatorship and democracy, that there's a cycle of that process. And so once I was sort of emphasizing the notion of this cycle, then I had to find, okay, well, what is the mechanism for that happening, right? What was significant was that the changes didn't happen randomly. They happened in a cycle, right? That over a short period of time, all of the countries in uh, Latin America, and I eventually focused just on South America. So all of the countries in South America would become democracies, and then they would be democracies for a little while. And then once again, over a fairly short period of time, all of them would transition back to dictatorships. And if you plot that, you know, the number of democracies in South America over time, you see a pretty clear rise and fall cycle of dictatorship and democracy in the region. So then the question becomes, okay, if there's a cycle of that going on, there has to be a mechanism for it spreading, right? How how is the notion of regime change spreading from one place to another? Because it's not like there's some virus that gets in the air and Brazil has a military coup and then the virus floats across the border and then Argentina has one. Right, right. That obviously is illogical. Yeah. So there has to be some causal mechanism. And what I, what I discovered or what I found in my research was – uh, a sociological concept called diffusion of innovation. It's basically the, the philosophy behind the spread of cell phones or the spread of uh, iPads or the spread of telephones or the spread of, you know, uh, combines, you know, whatever innovation, there is a pattern of the, the spread of that innovation. And so I argued that regime change was the innovation, either the military leaving power or the military taking power, because in some sense, the military was the decision maker, right? They either decide that they're going to take power or they decide that they are going to leave power. And so the title of my dissertation was The Cycle of the Diffusion and Decay of Dictatorship and Democracy in South America which is a lovely alliterated title. <laughs> yes, yes, we like that. 
Uh, and, and what was especially neat about it was so then I had a set of hypotheses about, well, if this is true, then these things need to be true. Number one, there has to be a network of relationship among military elites. Otherwise, no diffusion is possible. Number two, there has to be statistically a stronger relationship between a sort of predictor of regime change, right? The number of previous regimes would make it more likely that another regime would switch, that there had to be a pattern of improvement, right? With the diffusion of innovation, there's always later adopters do things better than earlier adopters because they've, you know, they're building on what was learned before. Yeah. I think, and then the fourth one, I feel like there was a fourth one, but now I can't remember it. It's been 30 some years yeah, since yeah. I wrote it. <laughs> Understood. Uh, and so what was really neat about it was that all of my hypotheses were confirmed. Uh, I interviewed military people and they said, yes, we have, you know, we have very close personal friends with the military figures in other places. Um, in some uh, periodical research I did, I found numerous instances where high level military personnel were meeting with each other for, again, you know, formal kind of gatherings and stuff like that. You know, if you look at Brazil's military coup versus Argentina's versus Chile, there were definitely things that, you know, especially the Chileans did that were clear examples of building on, okay, you know, the Argentines didn't do this, the Brazilians didn't do this, and it didn't turn out as well, so we'll do this. Or going the other direction, one of my favorite examples of this is when the Argentines gave up power in 83, they did not guarantee themselves amnesty. And so a lot of the generals were put on trial. Well, you can, you know, bet the farm that the Brazilians and the Chileans, when they left power, that was built into the process. We'll give up power, but you can't go after us for our human rights abuses while we were in power. That, that is part of the agreement. And so that was clearly they learned from the example of what the Argentines hadn't done when the Argentine military left power. Huh. And it all really not only seems to, to stand up, but there seems to be a timelessness to, to the conclusions that you've drawn, right? Because we could look mm -hmm. at regimes in the 2020s mm -hmm. and draw similar conclusions. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How long did it take you to button up the PhD process? Well, so one of the unique things about the University of Iowa is that it's a straight PhD program. So I never had to write a master's thesis. I took my comprehensive exams the first semester of my third year which is what you need to do in order to then concentrate full-time on your dissertation. And I finished my dissertation basically in a year and a half plus a summer. Whoa, you were working fast. Yes, it was an unusually quick. It, I had a number of blessings along the way. Number one, I didn't have to deal with any hypotheses that proved incorrect, right? That's one of the things that slows you down is if you you predict something's going to happen and then the evidence doesn't support it and then you got to figure out a way around that. I never had to do that because all of my evidence confirmed what I was supporting. My dissertation advisor was fantastic. So I would write a chapter, give it to him to review, and he had it back to me the next day. Oh, my. Because I know a lot of people during their dissertation, they have problems with those kind of things. 
uh, my dissertation committee, none of them had their own little, you know, hobby horse that, oh, well, I know you're talking about Latin America, but could you throw in this chapter about Turkey? Uh, you know, <laughs> nobody had that kind of thing, yeah, yeah, which yeah. again, you know, that happens sometimes yeah. where the dissertation committee has its own things that it wants to do. And then you're forced to, to go along with that. Uh, and then I also share, uh, I was married by the time I was working on my dissertation. And there's a, a notion among grad students that grad students who are, who are married get things done faster because the spouse isn't interested in, you know, theoretical breakthroughs that you had with the guys <laughs> at the, in the TA room. Uh -huh. Pages. How many pages did you write today? <laughs> yes. And yes, so that, makes that, sense. that certainly helped as well. <laughs> All right. So if, if you don't mind, would you be so kind as to date it for me? In what year did they put the stamp on your PhD? Uh, August of 1991. That is indeed, as fate would have it, the very month my brother moved to Iowa City. So oh, okay. like ships sailing in the night. And <laughs> shortly after that, I guess, you got the job at Simpson. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I went through the commencement ceremony because I love ceremonies. So I went through the commencement ceremony in early August and I started at Simpson August 23rd or 4th, something like that. Oh, what a success story. I love everything about this. Thank you so much for sharing that. What classes do you teach at Simpson? Or maybe it's better if I ask, mm -hmm. what are the classes that you have tended to teach over the last decade or so? Because I think in 33 years, you've probably taught you know, from A to Z, what, what, what's been yeah. in your wheelhouse over the last decade or so? Sure. Actually, the last decade doesn't narrow it a whole lot. But what I will share is that I, I'm probably fairly unique when it comes to teaching comparative politics. Uh, number one, we don't have an intro to comparative class. So the course that uh, AP Comp GoPo is a substitute for, we don't even offer here at Simpson. But I do offer a series of comparative area courses. So I teach Eastern European politics. Actually, it's Russia and Eastern European politics, uh, Western European politics, Asian politics, Latin American politics, and Middle Eastern politics. Oh, wow. When I've gone through, yeah, I know, exactly. When, when, when I've gone through my post-tenure reviews, every five years, we have to go through the to the faculty personnel committee and show that we're still engaged and working on improvement and stuff like that. And they almost always ask me about, well, you know, how do you keep track of so many countries? Shouldn't you drop one of the one or two of these areas? And I'm like, no, that that would be like saying, oh, you know, four kids is too many. I should just get rid of one. You know, it's too much work. It's like I love something unique about each of the five comparative areas that I teach. And I can't imagine not teaching it. It, it. it it really is what gets me excited about teaching is exposing students to the astonishing variety of political systems that exist in the world. And each, each area of the world provides a unique hook or a unique theme to, you know, get the students organized around in terms of relating back region's political experience with their own political experience here in the U.S. So, Eduardo, I'm super excited to hear you talk about your your 
role as an AP reader and as the chief reader in particular, mm -hmm. but we just sort of stumbled into your classroom. So <laughs> if you're willing, I would like to get you to talk about your classroom. And sure. it dawns on me that this might not be particularly easy because as you just said, you teach five different comparative classes. So who knows where to start? I'm going to start here. <laughs> In any one of these comparative government classes, whether it's the Eastern Europe one, the Western Europe one, the Latin American one, can I get you to talk a bit about how your course balances lectures, discussions, presentations, mm -hmm. simulations? What's your approach to creating that delicate balancing act? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> well, the first thing I have to admit is that I, I tell people that I was born 400 years too late, <laughs> that if I was you know, teaching in medieval Europe, you know, in the in the heavy robes, walking through the dusty castle, lecturing for eight hours a at a time, that would have been a dream. Yeah. I would love doing that. <laughs> Unfortunately, they tell me that today's students don't respond to that very well. <laughs> well, let me pause you there because I don't I don't necessarily think that's true, and I don't think you think it is either. I think no. that students respond well to to greatness. I think that students respond well to passionate people. Yes. I think students respond well when teachers are doing what they do well. And so I'm mm -hmm. hearing you say your tendency is towards lecturing, and I want you to be totally unapologetic about it. <laughs> I have um, I have had the pleasure of you know being in a room with you. You command an audience splendidly, <laughs> and all respect. So. Eduardo, what percentage of these comparative <laughs> government classes, give or take, are you in your metaphorical robe holding court? Uh, I'm going to guess about 75% probably. And that's, again, that's probably down from when I started. Uh, when I started, it probably would have been closer to 90% lecture. Um, and I do try, when, I, when I'm lecturing, increasingly, I try to insert a section uh, in, a, in a discussion, like if I'm talking about political legitimacy in Eastern Europe, uh, then I'll try to you know, insert a section where students are generating the different sources of political legitimacy that might exist. You know, why do individuals leading governments have the right to make decisions? Or why do the people in a country give their rulers the right to make decisions on their behalf? So rather than just giving the list myself, I'll open it up for them to talk about when I the last time I taught Western European politics and I would cover parliamentarianism and that kind of process, then we segue into a discussion of, well, would it work better if the U.S. was a parliamentary system versus our presidential system? Yeah. What would be the advantages of doing that? What would the disadvantages yes. be? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yes, exactly. Um, short, short discussion. Yes. So I do a little bit more of those kind of things. But the other big thing that I would share that I do is I do a lot of role-playing kind of activities in my classes. Um, in my Latin American politics class, we have a role-playing game that I'm actually developing myself on the Brazilian Constituent Assembly, which actually was after the dictatorship, 1986-87. Uh, and so students play the roles of delegates to that Constituent Assembly deciding whether Brazil should be a parliamentary system or a presidential system. Should the military have amnesty or not, which of course is 
counterfactual, but is something that uh, is obviously a really significant issue to debate. Uh, in my Asian politics class, there's a reacting game, which is set in the Simla Independence Conference for India, where delegates are debating, you know, what's India going to look like in independence? Is it going to be divided into two countries? Is it going to be divided somehow differently? What powers are going to people have? Um, I also do in all of my comparative classes an opportunity for students to present on political parties as advocates for those parties, right? So I, I always feel like if you're presenting like the Labor Party or the United Russia Party or the uh, Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, if you're presenting those parties as your party, as, your, as an advocacy, it's going to be a different presentation than if you're just describing the party and its political stances. Uh, and so it's in that assignment, I've had students do mock interviews. I've had students put together videos. I've had students give out handouts. I even had students once bring a, uh, a like a life-size picture of Daniel Ortega to <laughs> class uh, to say what a fantastic guy he was and how everybody yeah. should be voting for the Sandinistas. Uh, and so I, I, in all of my classes, I do some some a variety of different kinds of role-playing uh, kind of activities uh, for what the students do. Oh, your class sounds like a really lively place, which I would imagine just knowing <laughs> what I know of you. So is it safe to assume that most of your students are political science majors or political science minors? Do you have any students who aren't moving in that direction or are political science curious? Yeah. So the sequence of comparative courses that I teach, all of them meet one of the general education requirements for either global studies or I think the, the new in the new major, it's called global interests or something along those lines. Uh, and so I'd say in most of my classes, two thirds to three fourths are majors. And then there'll always be a handful because most of my classes have 25 students or so. There'll always be a handful of students who are taking the class to fulfill one of the general education requirements. Uh, but yeah, I will have students in my classes who are science majors, business majors, humanities, arts. Those people will be in my classes from time to time as well because it is just the class that fits in their schedule or they've heard how fantastic I am and, and just can't avoid an opportunity to take a class with me. <laughs> well, I don't blame them. Those kids, they got good taste. So a lot of what you do is sharing your hard-earned wisdom, but when you turn it over to the class, it sounds like you have very well-designed plans. There's a lot of exciting things happening. Your class sounds great. I wish I could take it. <laughs> Quick question, just my sheer curiosity, what cases do you choose for your Asian comparative class? Yeah, well, so th this is actually a very significant philosophical dynamic for me Yeah, because the way that comparative politics is often taught at the college level is, well, let's talk about Japan, let's talk about China, let's talk about India, and then sort of treat them separately and not actually provide any comparison, right? Uh, that That's something that just drives me nuts when it comes to, if you, I mean, as you know, you pick up a comparative politics textbook and it's a series of chapters on individual countries. 
And sometimes there's some consistency between one chapter and another, but sometimes there's none. That the author of the chapter on Mexico does something completely different than the author of the chapter on Chile. Uh, and so that is something that, uh, again, I work studiously to avoid, like in Western European politics, we will focus on the UK, France, Germany, obviously, but I really emphasize that we're looking at what consistencies, what generalities, what similarities we can find among all of the 20 some countries that we would define as Western Europe or, you know, the 20 some countries we would define as Eastern Europe or whatever the case is. Now, it's interesting that you ask about Asia because Asia is unique in the way that I organize it because I do organize it in three sections. Uh, China and the communist and former communist countries, Japan and the newly industrialized countries, and then India and the developing countries. Uh, so it's the one course where I do single out three types, but this is the reason I love Asian politics, is that in one comparative class, students get exposed to three major movements or major dynamics in political development, right? They're, they're getting some exposure to communism and the evolution of communist systems and what happens after communism collapses in the former republics in Asia of uh, the Soviet Union. But they're also looking at a developed democracy and other emerging democracies and their transition to democracy and so on. And then they're also looking at developed nations and the unique challenges that developing nations face whether they are democratic or aspiring to be democratic or not bothering to be democratic at all. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I still, even within those three categories, while we will emphasize China and we'll emphasize Japan and we'll emphasize India, I really, really try to make clear that we're trying to find connections, we're trying to find similarities, we're trying to find overlap among the countries that fall into that category. Makes sense to me. Let me ask you this. On any given semester, how many different comparative courses might you teach? I would only be teaching one. It would be very, very unusual for me to teach more than one. Uh, it's I basically do either Eastern Europe or Western Europe in the fall. I do Latin America or Asia in the spring. And then Middle Eastern politics is a course that I added most recently because I've taught those four since the very beginning but I added Middle Eastern politics. It's probably going on 15 years ago now. And so that one I sort of plug in when there's a sort of slot in my schedule. Uh, so it's, it's pretty rare for me to be teaching more than one comparative course at a time. Okay. Nevertheless, I'm feeling the urge to ask how you manage hmm. to keep in mind the political systems of all of these different countries around the world. So as someone, as you know, who, you know, I, I, I live in Germany, I grew up in the United States, I keep my eyes on those two countries. And then I have the six countries that I pay close attention to mm -hmm. per my teaching of the AP course. That's eight countries that I'm dialed into. And I got to say, it's pretty hard to stay <laughs> dialed into those eight. And yeah. here's Eduardo over here 
who's dialed into dozens, perhaps? 120 some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I ask, I mean, first of all, to like, you know, yeah. give you a fist bump from across the Atlantic, but also <laughs> I wonder if you could share some wisdom about how you do that. Like, mm -hmm. is there a hack? Have you created systems to <laughs> keep these countries and their systems in mind? Yeah. Well, I, there are a couple of things that come to mind. Number one, obviously, it's a lot of reading. And I have a reputation here at Simpson College for always reading when I'm walking across campus, that I'll have an economist in my hand or Time or Newsweek or, or a textbook or whatever, you know, because I, I don't have time to waste just walking across campus. I have to also be keeping up on what's going on at the same time. So there's no question that it takes a, a, an exceptional amount of reading and attention. I, I will admit that like right now I'm teaching Western European politics, so I'm not paying as much attention to Eastern Europe or Latin America because it's not something that I'm about to be teaching again. Um, so that is certainly something that's part of it. Um, secondly is I have a fairly clear uh, protocol, I guess you could say, or, or system that I use for each of the areas. Uh, so, you know, I have a sense of here's how we think about executives. Here's how we think about legislatures. Here's how we think about political parties. Here's how we think about the policymaking process. And so within each of those areas, then what I'm looking for is just new material to plug in, right? Yeah. This is the typical relationship between the prime minister and the legislature in parliamentary systems. Okay, here's an example of that when Liz Truss leaves and Rishi Sunak takes her place. Or uh, here's an example of campaign politics in Latin America. Here's the template for it. And now here's the recent Brazilian elections or the upcoming Ecuadorian elections or whatever the case is. So I have sort of a, a mental map, if you will, of the way I think about these regions. And then it's just a matter of plugging in new information that fits into those categories. Uh, and then the third thing that I would admit is that I don't have the, the depth of knowledge about these places that probably you do. Uh, that in terms of any individual country, I've accepted that I'm not going to be as deeply versed on you know, the upcoming Ecuadorian elections as someone who studies just Latin American politics, as opposed to even someone who studies exclusively Ecuadorian politics, I'm just not going to know it in that much detail. And I'm okay with that because what I'm, what I try to provide to my students in my comparative classes is that sense of, well, there isn't just one way to do this, you know, that, that as Americans, we tend to think, oh, well, there's one way of organizing political systems. Ours has its flaws, but there's really no other good way to do it. And for them to be able to be exposed to, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to organize the relationship between executives and legislatures, a lot of different ways to organize political parties, a lot of different ways to manage elections and you know, the process of producing policy that and again, there's strengths and uh, weaknesses to all of those. And so that's the underlying dynamic that I want my students to take away from my course. And so if they don't really know who, you know, Emmanuel Macron beat in the most recent French elections, eh, that's not the end of the world. Yeah. I, I'm okay with that.
Yeah. You know, I have to say, I'm really inspired by how passionately you speak about your, your teaching and your approach to learning so that you can teach as well as you do. It's just so great that 33 years in, you know, you, you have this, this, this vigor in, in your tone. And it seems to me that that comes from like a real love for, for what you do. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could get you to talk about that. Like, what do you, what do you love about your comparative courses? Well, I, what, what I love about them is the variety that's available to them. I'll, I'll, I'll speak especially about Middle Eastern politics, since that's the course that I most recently started. And so, you know, again, 10, 15 years ago, whenever I started looking at it, it's just astonishing to me the range of what we see as political systems in the Middle East. I mean, we have there's a theocracy yeah. in Middle Eastern politics. Yeah. The, the nations, Saudi Arabia and the other monarchical regimes, if you wanted to know what monarchies were like in 15th century Europe, just go to Saudi Arabia. That's, that's ex- a living version of what those regimes were like 300 years ago. Uh, and it's that variety and that complexity of how peoples and nations have decided to organize themselves that I just think is so fascinating. Again, it comes back to, I couldn't imagine giving any of them up because it's so, the, the, the just range and variety. Like I tell people that if I could only teach Latin American politics, it would be okay. Cause obviously there's some variety among the Latin American nations, but I, I, I tell my students, like when I, start my class on Western European politics in two weeks. I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell you what I always say. And those of you who have been in others of my classes will be like, well, how can this be his favorite class when he just told me his Latin American politics (laughs) class was his favorite? But it's like, there's something so special about talking about the European Union and how, if anything, is likely to be the next stage in human political development, right? We went from city states to nation states. What's likely to be next is something like the European Union, right? That's 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 the best candidate we have right now for what the next stage of human political development is going to be. And we get to talk about this and, and compare it to the U.S. experience of doing something relatively similar in pulling together 13 diverse colonies and creating a nation, what can we learn from that that would work for the European Union? And uh, yeah, see, I'm going to go on and on here <laughs> because there's just all of these little things that just, just, I just love so much and I just find so incredibly fascinating. Well, and you're expert, truly expert at, at making the connections for students and then, you know, challenging them to make those connections right. too, which I know was so important to you. Yep. You know, I have to say, I feel myself a little bit overwhelmed because I'm thinking this guy's got his finger on the pulse of 120 some odd countries. He has four or five <laughs> different comparative courses. I have a, a million more questions, but I also want to respect your time. And speaking of your time, somehow you manage to make time every year to not just show up at the AP reading, but to lead it. So you've been reading AP exams for more than 20 years. Uh, maybe you could share the Genesis story, like how sure. and and why did you get involved in the reading? So uh, 25 years ago or so, I suppose, in, in 
early 2000, um, our registrar came across from somewhere an email about being a, a, an AP reader. And so she just sent a mass email or forward to the faculty. Here's something I came across. Maybe you'd be interested in it. And at the time, I was looking to move from our house and, and build a new house. And so I was like, oh, I could use a little extra money for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was the opportunity for, you know, to spend a week, uh, make some extra money, and that would be great. And so the first year that I went to the AP reading, I was really just clocking in. I did my reading, and literally every day of the reading, I went directly from the end of the reading to my car, because it was conveniently in Nebraska, so I could drive, to my car and went golfing. Yeah. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't go out with anybody. I was just, you know, it was an opportunity to play a lot of golf and make some money. Um, and then the next year, my younger brother, who also teaches political science, uh, came as well because he does the same work that I do. So I suggested that he become an AP reader. Uh, so I spent a little bit more time uh, socializing and stuff like that. And then the following year when we moved from Nebraska to Colorado was when I really started engaging with the broader, you know, participation in the reading. I started thinking about, you know, I, I enjoyed the project. I thought it was a very valuable project. I appreciated, uh, you know, AP as a program and comparative politics, obviously, at that time is a really, really small uh, program in uh, AP and College Board. Uh, and so I thought those were all good things. And so then I started, you know, envisioning, oh, I could I could see myself as a table leader. And then as a table leader, I could see myself as a question leader. And, and once I was a question leader, again, because I am fascinated by process, I tell my students that I am an institutionalist at heart. And so I know that governments exist to produce policy outcomes, but honestly, I could care less about that stuff. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All I care about is how we got to that place. Uh, and so it was the same thing with, with the AP reading. You know, I'm fascinated by the, pro you know, how do you manage making sure that all the tables finish at about the same time? And, and how do you manage ensuring that readers are getting a quality uh, training packet and that, you know, they're going to be able to do the job that they need to do. How do you choose people for leadership and put them in the right places? And, and all of those kind of things I was really interested in and uh, felt like I could do well. You know, I, I thought I could do a pretty good job of it. Uh, and so the, the process for becoming a chief reader is a little opaque, uh, I'll say. Uh, it's in, even though uh, ETS and obviously me as the current chief reader are have ideas about these things, it's entirely up to College Board. I mean, College Board could pick a random person out of nowhere to be the chief reader of a reading if they wanted to. It's entirely their choice. Uh, but I had some relationship with people in College Board that I, you know, contacted, and then that translated into getting an interview. And then I was the person that came out of the interview process as the, the chief reader. Well, you wear the hat splendidly, and I don't know that it's always an easy hat to, to wear. And, and it seems like you really enjoy it. And it, yeah, it just seems like you're having fun. First of all, am I right? Are you having fun? And secondly, like, if so, what's fun about it? 
Yeah, no, I I definitely enjoy being chief reader. Uh, I'll admit that as an extroverted person, having all of the attention on me is is something that I appreciate. <laughs> uh-huh. I I have to, I have told people that the thing that I am most going to miss about being chief reader is that every single person when they leave the closing night reception says goodbye to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was not the case before I was chief reader. <laughs> right. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so, so I I will admit that I do enjoy that part. Uh, but when it comes to the the process part, so I have what is a fairly intricate system of expectations for how we need to be progressing on a quarter by quarter basis to finish on time. And so every quarter, even though we have access to the data constantly, I I discipline myself to only look at the data every quarter. So every quarter, I pull up the data on all of the tables and how much progress they did in the last quarter and, you know, what they've done to how far along they are and how much more they have left. And then I parse that data into, okay, well, you know, table, you know, table one on question two is scoring at this rate. And if they continue to score at this rate, they'll be done on day nine. Okay. That's not really an option. (laughs) For a seven day schedule, that is decidedly problematic. Yeah. (laughs) So then I'm like, okay, well, how do I fix that? You know, so then I've got the data on this other table that is going to finish on day five if they go at current rates. And so then I'm like, okay, now is it too early to move someone from that table to this table? I mean, it's all, you know, there's there's so many moving parts to make sure that, you know, some some group of readers aren't done the afternoon of day six while a bunch of the rest of them are not done until the end of day seven. And so it really it plays to my obsessive compulsive nature, I think a little bit that I have, I have an Excel file and I put numbers in and then I start doing more detailed numbers. I'll get to the point where I'm looking at, okay, you know, I've looked at the quarterly numbers. Now it's time to start looking at the hourly numbers and then projecting the hourly numbers out. And so I, I really, really do enjoy that piece a lot uh, because there's a tremendous amount of satisfaction of, you know, starting on day one and having no idea which tables and which forms are going to score faster than others. And then on day seven, we literally had, I think, 20 some readers on the one question that was behind and we finished to the second right before lunch Yeah, yeah. on day seven. Yeah. And that is incredibly gratifying. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. So I should tell you that I find the process of reading AP exams to be a deeply earnest process. Mm-hmm. You know, people show up there and it's not, let's say it's not always the most enjoyable work in the world. <laughs> Right. It is it is yes. the definition of monotony. But somehow you and your team find the right people to show up and with their best efforts towards reliability, validity, and speed, mm-hmm. they they hammer away at these exams, reading the same question over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I say that to, to say this. I think that 
teachers who who haven't graded exams, which is to say most teachers, mm -hmm. and all students who take AP exams because they can't be there to grade them, I think they really don't understand how that sausage is made. And so as someone who's deeply passionate about processes and mindful of institutions, what do you wish more high school students and their teachers knew about the process of assessing AP exams? Well, I, I think the key you, you said at the very beginning, people in comparative politics, and I think this may be somewhat unique to us because we're obviously not the biggest discipline out there, certainly not within AP. We're one of the larger of the really small ones, but we're way behind U.S. and U.S. history and all of those exams. So we're a small community to begin with of people who recognize the tremendous value and importance of comparative politics as a discipline. And so I think you start from that place, right, that everyone who is eligible to, to grade AP exams for comparative is in the unique position of being, you know, I mean, at the University of Iowa, there were 20 people teaching American government and two, four, something like that, who taught comparative. I mean, that's always the way it is when it comes to comparative. So we're already predisposed to care deeply about the quality uh, of our field and the value of our field. Uh, and then I think both the high school teachers and even the college professors appreciate the effort that went into teaching this course, getting students to take the course, getting students to be committed to take the exam. And so for students uh, and then for teachers as well to appreciate that the powerful thing about the AP reading is the commitment that we have as a community to the success of this program. I mean, we care very deeply that comparative government be successful, that students who get a three or four or five in comparative government deserve it and will do well if they choose to go on to the, the next class in political science. Uh, and I, I'm just struck uh, in terms of the passion of the people involved in this community. When I think about the dedication that went into scoring this exam from home those two years during COVID, it just blows me away because grading exams is fairly tedious work, but at least you have the benefits of being with colleagues and maybe doing some neat stuff in Salt Lake City and so on. Yeah, during COVID years, there was none of that. It was you with a computer in front of you, sitting in your office or the den or whatever, kids screaming in the background, and they still stuck it out to make sure that that job got done. That is the commitment that I think is, is certainly true of comparative. And I imagine it's equally true of the other AP classes, but definitely in comparative politics, there is a dedication to the success of the enterprise. It's part of the reason why I enjoy being part of this group. Yeah, well said, my friend. I appreciate the way you see it, and, and I see it the same way. I think there's a lot of like misinformation and disinformation yes. about how the sausage is made, if you will. <laughs> and um, I, I would hypothesize that any teacher or any student who had the opportunity to, to talk to a reader or, or for a teacher to become a reader and to see how it's done, any reticence or skepticism or cynicism that they might have would 
quickly be put to the side because it really is, yeah. as you describe it, a, a group of, of deeply suffering people uh, committed <laughs> to to validity and reliability and to yes. giving students what they've earned, right? Yes, absolutely. I like the way that you see it that way. So as you were describing it, it, it hit me that you've been in one capacity or another, you're kind of moving your way up the ranks. Mm -hmm. At the AP reading for, you know, one or two weeks a year for the last 22 years. And you've been with high school teachers and you've been with university professors reading comparative government and politics exams. And as you reflect on these experiences, I wonder if I could get you to, to offer some advice to fledgling comparativists, you know, high school kids and their teachers about what it takes mm. to thrive in this course and, and, to, and to succeed on the exam. And if I may add, to enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind as far as sort of tips for it is the key to comparative politics is a strong foundation in the basic concepts that if you understand political legitimacy, if you understand uh, the relationship among institutions, uh, if you understand political efficacy, uh, participation, I mean, it, it seems like there are some really foundational dynamics that are true no matter where you go, no matter what country you're studying, no matter what political system you're looking at. And so focusing on those things so that you have a strong understanding of those sort of underlying concepts, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the comparative government course is so good is because it has that emphasis on the underlying concepts. Uh, having that strong foundation in those underlying concepts then makes looking at the individual different countries. And then even if you moved beyond just the six countries in AP comparative, you know, I have this template for understanding Brazilian politics, or I have this template for understanding Canadian politics, or I have this template for understanding Angolan politics, that that, that is the key to comparative politics is, is understanding those things. Uh, and then I think the second thing would just be appreciating that diversity, that while it is complicated, right? It makes it harder to study comparative politics because every one of the 190 some countries in the world does things a little bit differently than the others. There are some underlying dynamics and that diversity is what's interesting about comparative politics. It's what's, what, what's intriguing about comparative politics. What, what makes comparative politics fun is that variety and, and, and not getting uh, sort of overwhelmed by that variety, but embracing it, accepting it, and and enjoying it for the opportunity that it provides to to see the 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 tremendous differences of human accomplishment, if you will. I don't want to get too <laughs> highfalutin there, but but you know what human beings have been able to accomplish as they've organized themselves, and and to appreciate that. I think those are the things that would really would help in you know getting started. Or, you know, when, when the roadblocks come along and, and it gets tiresome to study, you know, the, the various parties and the 
uh, in the UK or in the Mexican legislature or trying to figure out those kind of things when it gets a little tedious to appreciate the diversity and, and uh, to go back to those foundational concepts, I think will be really handy. Yeah, I think per your second point, it's particularly important to appreciate that diversity, especially in light of the tendency that you know you and I both see where students, but also their parents and their community members have a tendency to dismiss politics with sentences like, ah, they're all the same. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ah, wherever you go, it's right. all the same. And it's like, well, actually, <laughs> kind of not. There's actually nuance to this, yeah. right? There's layers to this. Yeah. And a comparative government course can, can help to suss out those variables and to illuminate those nuances and, and to create something elegant and interesting instead of something so dismissive, which you you and I both know there's a tendency not just to dismiss politicians, which sometimes should be dismissed, but to <laughs> to dismiss politics, which is yeah, you know, the opposite of war. So let's not dismiss it too quickly. Yeah. I want to pick up on the first part of your answer though, because I think you and I share a deeply rooted passion for teaching concepts. Mm-hmm. You've been, as we said, grading these exams for 22 years, I think it is. And over those years, you, you see patterns because you, sir, are always focusing on patterns. That's your bailiwick. <laughs> when, you, when you reflect, what do you think are like, you know, one or two or three of the most challenging concepts for students to wrap their heads around? Yeah. One, one consistent one, I think, is what it means to describe a party system. Um, I think students don't have a really well-established understanding of the difference between system and the particular parties that are in a country, right? So the Mexican party system is Morena and PRI and PAN, that's the system. Well, that's not actually the system. Those are the parties that operate in Mexico. The Mexican party system is a multi-party system, or uh, Russia is a dominant party system. I think party system is one that, that students just struggle with in terms of understanding what that means and the relationship. So then if they're asked the relationship between the electoral system and a party system, well, if they don't know the party system, they may know first past the post and proportional rep and stuff like that. But if they don't understand what a party system is, then they're not going to be able to make the connection. So that's one that I think is really a clear challenge for students. Uh, and then I think the second one is, is political legitimacy. Uh, again, they want to make it simpler than it is in terms of support. You know, political legitimacy is support, whereas legitimacy is much more specifically the reason that people give others the right to make decisions on their behalf, right? That's what political legitimacy is about. Uh, and so those are the two concepts that come to mind as being uh, two that, that students have uh, historically struggled with. And, and it's why whenever I do presentations to students, like at APAC, the National uh, AP Conference here a couple of weeks ago, when I have the opportunity to present to teachers, that's why I always come back to, you know, emphasizing those underlying concepts, even if it feels like it's redundant, it's, you know, beating a dead horse, 
students clearly struggle with those underlying concepts. And so, you know, even if you feel like you're spending more time on it than you need to, you probably need to. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Because <laughs> they 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 just struggle with understanding it. Well, yeah, they do. And I think they struggle to understand legitimacy in particular for a, a yet more complicated force as well. Because I think that it's hard for many of us to imagine that a government that we deem to be nefarious and unworthy right. of our support or our affection, um, unworthy of us to to delegate power to them, that, that, that they could somehow be legitimate is just anathema to our constitutions, right? Right. Because we have this very specific notion of like a specific source of legitimacy, right? Competitive elections. Right. And so like to be able to 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 push into that a little bit with and for students, yep. right? And to to make it clear to them that the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government enjoys very high degrees of legitimacy. Now let's begin the conversation there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. You know, legitimacy is hard to understand because it's hard to understand in a way, right? Because we have to right. undo <laughs> a lot of our biases to actually understand it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. That's one of the things that I really enjoy about the role that I play in putting together the exam. Because, of course, the chief reader is also a part of the test development committee. And so, one of the things that I really enjoy is finding ways to ask questions that challenge students to make that sort of counterintuitive dynamic. Why would a democratic regime have coercive elements? Why would an authoritarian regime allow for some degree of participation? Because that is exactly going against this default mindset and forcing students to appreciate that, oh, this is a lot more complicated than I thought. Yeah, democratic regimes do some things that don't appear to be, you know, they'll put some restrictions on the press. They'll put some restrictions on participation, that that's not exclusive to authoritarian regimes. And authoritarian regimes will allow some freedom of participation, some freedom of protest, some freedom of even the press, obviously within confines, et cetera. But, you know, they also need to do those things because of those underlying dynamics that, that we're talking about. Yes, precisely. Right. We call it nuance. And I yes. think that's, you know, part of the challenge, like you're saying, of writing the exam, because, you know, you're yeah. really trying to suss out the students who have what I'm going to call a five understanding from a four understanding from a three understanding and thinking about politics in a nuanced way, not just so that we can test them on it. Right. Yeah. But so that they think about politics in a nuanced way is right. critically important, particularly in these times. And Eduardo, I can't, I can't thank you enough for for doing it i can't thank you enough for how much of yourself that that you give to this program that has done so much for me over the last 18 years i've been teaching this class you know i've said it on this podcast before and i don't mind saying it again i'm a better teacher i'm a better thinker and i'm a better person for having committed myself so wholeheartedly to this course and to be able to talk with you about it man it makes me real happy so happy that I'm going to give you an opportunity just to drive this train into the station here. 
I'm going to give you the chance to recommend to our audience anything that you want to recommend to them. It could be a book, an article, a mountain range, anything <laughs> that has helped to shape your thinking about comparative politics. Um, one is a book that I've used in my Latin America politics class called Mexican Lives by Judith Hellman. Uh, Judith Hellman is a, an anthropologist, so she does that in person, you know, with the people kind of interview research kind of process. So in the book, she visits with a variety of people in Mexico. Now, the book is getting a little bit older, but I think it's still very relevant and powerful. So she interviews people who are poor, interviews people who are wealthy, interviews people living in the city, interviews people living in the country. And there's some really fascinating insights into the sort of practical uh, consequences of the political issues that we talk about. In, in particular, there's a really neat example of clientelism or patron-client dynamics, those kind of things in Mexican politics. There's some really interesting practical applications of what it's like for a person who is poor operating in that environment. So that's a really neat book for getting some insight into uh, Mexican uh, life and then the, the consequences for Mexican politics. Uh, and then I also have to recommend uh, Midnight in Chernobyl, yes. uh, which of course is about the Chernobyl disaster. And what I find most fascinating about that book uh, it's fascinating to me as a study of the inherent flaw, the inevitable demise that's built into an authoritarian system, that when you have a system in which you cannot offer disagreement to your boss, there are no circumstances in which that's possible, then something like Chernobyl is destined to happen. There is no way to get around that. The only way to avoid or at least to mitigate those kind of things is the competition that occurs in a democratic system where you have the media, where you have opposition parties, where you have even opposition people within your own party that are going to draw attention to things that aren't working or will not work or whatever the case is. Uh, and so I find Midnight in Chernobyl to be a very fascinating study of how authoritarian regimes are doomed to collapse. And it, and it really got me thinking a lot about what that means for Vladimir Putin and Russia, what it means for Xi Jinping and China. Well, I was reading an article here recently talking about how you know they're in their 70s now and old dictators typically don't just fade away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that idea of what the insights are from Midnight in Chernobyl for what we can expect in the future for Russia and China, very sobering uh, in terms of, you know, what the the end might look like. Uh, and so those were two books that came to mind that I think they're they're interesting reads, they're fun reads, they're not uh, they're not daunting. Uh, I mean, Midnight in Chernobyl, even though I did know how it end felt to me like a, a a thriller, and I'm like I'm staying up late at night to see what happens in the next yeah, chapter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a great book. Uh, so those were the two things that came to mind for me to recommend. Well, I will link to both of those books in the show notes. I have to say, Eduardo, I was reasonably convinced that since you're on the podcast, 
you would recommend another podcast. But since you didn't, <laughs> I'm going to do it for you because there is indeed this podcast, right? That it's not, yes. it's not about politics per se, but it is, I think, a pretty fun model of passionate but polite disagreement that all students <laughs> of politics could could benefit from. It is called Magellan's at the Movies. And uh, maybe you could tell us who the co-hosts are of Magellan's <laughs> at the Movies? Yes. Uh, Magellan, for those of you who don't know, is the lazy English way of saying Magalhães. You can Google this, uh, that Ferdinand Magellan, uh, his real name is actually, actually Fernão de Magalhães. Uh, so Magellan's at the Movies uh, is a podcast from my two oldest sons, uh, my son Nathan and uh, Elliot. Nathan is uh, a third-year student in grad school for, uh, in computer programming, and then Elliot is taking a year off before he pursues a master's of fine arts and creative writing, uh, and it's a podcast about movies. I am extremely impressed with the, the, the way that they can talk about movies in such an articulate, informed detailed kind of fashion. And, and you will occasionally get references to philosophy and uh, politics and a variety of other subjects because uh, they, they draw a lot of material from a lot of different other places to it. Uh, so I, I'm going to ask that anyone who <laughs> connects with it, don't tell them that I failed to promote their podcast <laughs> because I have promised that I would promote it in every setting that I could. And Daniel here has uh, caught me in that, that I failed to uh, plug that. So uh, uh, please don't, don't rat me out. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I heard you plug it this summer and just being a podcast fiend and, and, you know, a bit of a movie nerd, I couldn't resist. And they have such a fun, sweet banter with one another. It's totally a romp to listen to them. Uh, the episodes are about a half hour. And so, Kogo Pod listeners, if you're out there and you're also movie watchers, don't miss Magellan's at the movies. I will link to that in the show notes right along with Mexican Lives and Midnight in Chernobyl. Dr. Eduardo Magallanes, it has been such a joy to be in conversation with you, to learn from you, to have you on the Kogo Pod. Thank you for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, my friends, that was my conversation with Professor Eduardo Magallanes III. As promised, the guy is a bona fide pleasure to speak with. Lots of energy, lots of passion, lots of enthusiasm, and he knows a lot of things. All hail the chief reader. All hail the chief reader. Maybe that's what I'll call this episode. <laughs> I think I just stumbled into the title of this episode. We'll see. I'll think about it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna commit to it right here. All right, if you enjoyed that conversation, we have two more conversations with professors of political science, professors of comparative government and politics coming up in the next few weeks. If you enjoy those conversations and you want to support this podcast, as always, buymeacoffee.com slash kogopod. The link's in the show notes. I wish you all health and wellness. Please. Take care, and I'll catch you next time.